This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story, and it's time for our culture beat, and we love to talk about what's on TV. We love it. By the way, in the night of HBO's new show, terrific. Just check it out. I mean, it's as good a law and procedural as you've ever seen. Richard Price, the great writer, written the screenplay. Fantastic. And we love Shark Tank, and we also love Judge Judy. You are about to enter the courtroom of Judge Judith Scheindlin. The people are real. The cases are real. The rulings are final. This is Judge Judy. And we love this show. And luckily for me, I've had a change in my schedule. So now I'm home a lot of times when this thing's coming on. And I watch it. And now I'm, I'm addicted to it. I mean, I just, if it's on, I'm watching. I don't yep. care if I'd seen it before. She's so entertaining. And by the way, there's a lot of deep social and cultural stuff going on in that show. And personal responsibility is a big one for her. And lying and cheating. I mean, she's just like old school. And so we're taking a look at a case right now. And this episode uh, involves a very animated plaintiff, a 30-something-year-old apartment renter named Karina Roy. The defendant's name is Nicole, a 50-something who is Karina's landlord. Judge Judy opens with a description of the roommate's complaint. Miss Roy, according to your complaint, you rented a room in defendant's home. Yes. You had an argument over Tupperware. Yes. As a result of that argument, you say you were assaulted, given an eviction notice, forced to move. You want the defendant to pay you for the assault, pro rata for the rent, your moving expenses. Tell me about the argument. And here's Karina's very interesting argument. Well, um, the morning of June 6th, I woke up and um, I had been looking for my Tupperware throughout that week. And What um, Tupperware? This Tupperware right here. Oh, that Tupperware. Yeah, that Those Tupperware. Those two pieces. Yes. <laughs> So throughout the week and in the morning before work and everything, that's when I had time to ask her. And this was the third time that I had asked her for my Tupperware, and she was changing the subject when two other times I wasn't getting um, direct answers, and where she was directing me, they weren't there. Like the first time I asked her... I'm not interested. Okay. Just get to the so point. So I said, look, if I don't get my Tupperware back, I'll just take it off my rent. And she said, well, don't you dare. And she threw her blankets off her, with, which every morning... Just a second. Are you telling me you went into her bedroom? Yes. To ask let me finish my question. You went into her bedroom to ask for those two pieces of Tupperware? Yes. For the and she was in bed? Uh, yes. <laughs> so the landlord was in bed and threw her blankets off. Karina continues. Go ahead. So she threw her blankets off. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. But, you know, every other... Just man- answer the question. <laughs> I mean, she threw her blankets off mm-hmm. and said what? Don't you dare, you know, and she threw her blankets off and she ran to the door and slammed it open. She said, I ate it. And she stormed into the kitchen and I followed her and she um, opened her Tupperware cupboard and um, forced all of her Tupperware on me like that. Let me explain something to you. Don't get dramatic with me. (laughs) Okay, go ahead. So she... And threw all of her Tupperware on me. She didn't throw all of her Tupperware on you. Yes, she did. Yes, did she, she did. Miss Roy, you're standing there, so what is what you're telling me? She took out each piece of Tupperware from the cupboard and threw it at you? No. She has a Tupperware cupboard, and she put her arm on one end of that Tupperware cupboard, and with all of her force, threw it on me, and I was standing behind her, and it landed on me. Is that the assault that you're talking about? That's one of them, yes. <laughs> but there's more. <laughs> and when was the other one? 
Then she kept standing there and screaming, you know, how dare you, and don't you dare, don't you even dare, Karina, shame on you, shame on you. Shh, listen to me. Like this. I hear you. Okay, go ahead. Well, this is what she was yelling at go me. Go ahead. And I said, you know, Cole, you said you were going to take care of my Tupperware, and, every, you know, and on Sunday your maid came, and I haven't seen him since. And she said, there's your answer, Karina. Look in that cupboard there. Look in that one. And I, ran, I go over there, and I open it up, and it's kind of on the ground, so I kneel down, and there's my Tupperware, and I grab it. And when I'm down, she's leaning her whole body into me, pointing her finger in my face. How dare you? Don't you even dare. Shame on you. That's it. I want you out of here. And she hit my head with her finger. She had all of her weight on me next karina is careening out of control she isn't finished so what happened next so then i got up and i'm just like backing away i'm like backing away i'm walking out of the kitchen you know and um she threw her hand up and that's it karina i want you out of here in 30 days and i said good and anna stood up and said hey and looking directly at me and said hey hey the babies the babies as she's looking at me and I had not said anything through this whole entire time. What did she say? The babies. The babies. Hey! Quiet. Judy now turns to the defendant, the landlord. Okay, so you gave her a 14-day notice. My assistant and I decided... Shh. Okay. You have a problem with giving her her prorated rent? Um, I do, Your Honor, because although she physically moved out, her property was still in, in the room. I don't consider that a cup and her teddy bear leaving property in the house so that you couldn't yeah. rent the room again if you wanted to. All right. Now, next. You want her to pay your moving expenses. Is that right? Yes. Wrong. So like, we just dealt with that. You don't get your moving expenses. And so what about, what about the payment for damages this poor lady received from her landlord's Tupperware assault? Now, damages due to the assault... I'm prepared to hear you if you want to tell me what your damages were as a result of the assault. Because of this, I mean, the way I physically felt, okay, was just like somebody just ripped my, I mean, I just felt hollow in here. I mean, I felt, I did not, I was, did Jeez. not feel stable at all. My driver You're not stable. <laughs> Anybody that walks into a bedroom, somebody's sleeping in their bed, to ask for two pieces of Tupperware and start an argument with them while they're in bed over two pieces of Tupperware isn't too stable. Okay. So Karina got leaned on and hit on the head with a finger and made it feel hollow inside her. Her heart was ripped out and her made her feel unstable. Here's Judge Judy awarding Karina for her early apartment dismissal. We also get their reactions. $199.92. That you are entitled to. Thank Judgment you. for the plaintiff in the amount of $199.92. Thank you. You want to give it back a bear? Certainly. Perfect. Bird, would you take care of the bear in the cup? Sure. Parties are excused. You may step out. She fought with all the tenants. She fought with me. She fought with my two sons who don't even live there anymore. Absolutely not. I'm such a meek, shy person. I bowed down to them and I stayed out of their way. Meek and shy. Definitely not, Karina. Well, we love Judge Judy. We love Shark Tank. Yeah. And we bring one or the other every week here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And our own Alex Cortez loves to regularly bring us great stories about human freedom and what can happen when it's unleashed in a free economy and occasionally what happens when governments get in the way. And today's story is about human freedom and potential in a place where you might least expect it. Here's Alex. You're about to hear the voices of five young siblings from Syria. My mom was tall and thin. Her face was tall. She loved us and used to spoil us a lot and stuff. All of my mom's food was delicious. They brought her body to us after she was shot by the Air Force from the airplanes. We started crying over her. We were crazy about her. My dad died because he inhaled the gas of a bombing at the beginning of the revolution. He killed them. The he is Bashar al-Assad, the Syrian dictator who has murdered his own country's civilians, innocent civilians, in its civil war. Like three million other Syrians, these five young children fled their own country to fight for their survival. Another eight million have been internally displaced to a different part of their country. Together, that's almost half of Syria's population who has been forced out of their hometowns. And they're the lucky ones. 300,000 will never see their hometowns again, losing their lives in the conflict. Neighboring country Jordan hosts over 600,000 of the refugees, almost one-tenth of their native population. These five children you heard from are among the 430,000 refugees that have passed through just one of Jordan's refugee camps, called Zatari, just six miles from Syria's southern border. At one point, it was the largest refugee camp in the world, and it's Jordan's fourth largest city, a refugee camp, the fourth largest city. 85,000 refugees live there today. But no one wanted to take in these five children because there's five of them until one woman heard about them and her husband said to bring them to their makeshift home in the refugee camp. Can you believe that? Adopting when you're in a refugee camp. Here she is speaking to Vice. The small children are a bit more accepting of the situation. Hanin, the eldest, she's still suffering from this problem. She saw her mother when she was shot. She can't forget that scene. Sometimes at any time at night when you come in, you'll find her awake. She doesn't sleep. She has non-stop anxiety, nervousness. Like many refugee camps of the past and present, they're filled with gut-wrenching stories like this. But unlike all others, at Zatari, there's something else going on too. Like a lot of something else. Like a guy who blings up bicycles in a refugee camp. A pizza shop 
in a refugee camp. And my favorite one of all, a bridal store in a refugee camp. Women used to come here, say they have weddings, and they can't find dresses. So we got two dresses for rent, and it worked out well. We're listening to its owner, a gentleman named Ataf, speaking through a translator. We have two weddings a day, and there are people who come from outside the camp to rent dresses because it's cheaper here. Wait a minute! Non-refugees come to a refugee camp to purchase something because it's better than what they can get anywhere else? If that is not the definition of crazy, I do not know what is. Things are so crazy at the Zattery refugee camp. Over 3,000 businesses generating $13 million of economic activity a month that they even have their own Champs-Élysées. It's what the refugees jokingly and quite seriously call their main thoroughfare, a lively one reminiscent of the famous French shopping street, the Champs-Élysées. And even though the French one is just a tad bit more posh, at their core, they're the same. Entrepreneurs busting their butts to solve problems for other people. I went to the camp and noticed that everybody needed water a lot. And so I decided to open this store. Thank God the choice was right. These are the tanks where we keep the water before desalination. It cleans it from the sand, dust, and anything else. All of the debris is removed from this filter. And this entrepreneur's water is cleaner than the water provided by the United Nations. And he's a refugee. I was a prisoner. When I was done with the detention, I came here. At the beginning of the camp, the UN provided every meal to the refugees. But today, they provide a voucher that's loaded onto a debit card, powered by the American company MasterCard, that enables them to have more control over their lives. We are very happy with the vouchers. Before, all we had was bulgur, lentils, rice, and canned food. It was limited. Now, we can have yogurt, cheese, sardines, tuna, and other foods we didn't have before. The change respected their dignity as unique and free individuals at a time when they felt least free in their lives, and it enabled an even greater dignity. The vouchers empowered the refugees to spend the money anywhere, fueling the creation of businesses to provide for their needs and desires, which fueled employment opportunities at these businesses and fueled the irreplaceable dignity that comes from work that the refugees had been so desperate to have back. Some people say the camp was better in the old days when they used to distribute meals, but I think that now is better. We're listening to a barber speaking through a translator whose shop is on their version of the Champs-Élysées. We can open our own shops. 
and the fact that this is possible is good for us. Now we're living like anyone else. The UN chief of the camp, Killian Kleinschmidt, has noted that today there's more perfume for sale. There's more lingerie. I feel underdressed when I go to the supermarket. People dress up to go shopping here. In fact, his UN has now concluded that helping refugees find jobs and start enterprises like the ones you've heard from is cheaper than humanitarian assistance. As long as these businesses continue to provide value to customers, they continue to generate profits that provide for the livelihood of their employees. A self-sustaining and never-ending engine of vitality, unlike humanitarian assistance that requires constant feeding from all of us and from the governments who we fund. In addition to the vibrant business life, there's another inescapable sign that the refugees have hope in the future. Babies. A lot of babies. Any moment in Sa'atu camp, uh, about 2,000 women are pregnant. And the refugees' birth rate is higher than that of Jordan. And not a single mother has died in pregnancy, despite the rather atypical birthing environments. Reporting for Our American Stories, I'm Alex Cortez. Beautiful job, Alex. What a story. And again... Human freedom, what happens when we unleash it anywhere in this country, in this world? And we love bringing you stories like these. The Champs-Élysées in a refugee camp. I just can't get over that. It's fantastic. This is Our American Stories, and you can hear all of these stories, all that we do, on OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Org. Post your stories if you find any about such things, about human freedom, about liberty, about your experience of friends or something you read at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Again, this is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. our American stories where we love to tell great stories about everything music sports love death and business one of our favorite subjects is generosity and the generous things Americans do for each other and the world which brings us to our sweet charity series with our partners the philanthropy roundtable the nation's leader in fostering excellence in generosity protecting philanthropic freedom and assisting givers in achieving their goals and the host of the series is none other than Carl Zinsmeister their head of publications, a modern renaissance man. And of course, we know him best by his book, The Almanac of American Philanthropy. And here's a story from that great collection. Take it away, Carl. You know, generosity isn't something that just affects other people. I bet a lot of you who are listening to this know somebody 
or some event where America's tradition of private giving touched very close to you. I only recently recognized one place where my earlier life would have been different if not for someone's philanthropy. During my elementary school years, one of my two best friends was a fellow named Dean Bettinger. We spent long hours together, catching frogs and building forts, riding bikes, playing baseball, tying our sisters to trees, all the stuff boys used to do outdoors before electronics turned so much of childhood into screen time. At one point, I banged on Dean's door, and his mother told me he was sick. It eventually turned out to be a kind of sick that a 10-year-old like me really couldn't understand. Dean's kidneys were failing. He ended up in the hospital for weeks. There was no happy answer when I asked when I would see my pal again. Suddenly, there was a big hole in my play days. Dean's kidney failure hit home again for me a few years ago when I was doing research for my recent Almanac of American Philanthropy, and I learned about the work of the John Hartford Foundation. The Hartford Foundation was funded by the two brothers who created the behemoth A&P grocery chain. A&P was the first merchant to reach $1 billion in annual sales. It went on to become the largest retailer in the world. A&P no longer exists, but for decades it was America's dominant grocery store. By the time the Hartford brothers died in the 1950s, their combined contributions of A&P stock made the Hartford Foundation the fourth largest philanthropy in the U.S. In the early 50s, the Foundation's trustees made a very smart decision to focus their giving tightly on one thing where they could really make a difference. They chose biomedical research. The Hartford Foundation quickly became the largest supporter of clinical science in America. Between 1954 and 1979, the Hartford Foundation provided hospitals and medical centers with hundreds of millions of dollars in research grants, equipment, fellowships for scientists, patient support, publication grants, and so forth. They ended up catalyzing many of the era's most important advances in medicine. Keep in mind that the federal government was not a big player in health research at that time. After World War II, the entire budget of the U.S. National Institutes of Health was less than $10 million a year. The major force in funding biomedical investigations in the U.S., especially on the cutting edge, was private philanthropy. And the Hartford Foundation was the big dog. In fact, during its peak spending years of 1962 to 1972, the Hartford folks funded more biomedical research than all other major foundations combined. Now, biomedical research sounds like a nice thing for a charity to support, but that's a pretty big and fuzzy category. So what specifically did this grocery store money produce to make the world a gentler place? Well, for example, Hartford funding was very important in helping us understand how the immune system works which was valuable not only in controlling disease, but also in figuring out the puzzles of organ rejection. Hartford was also a leader in the development of the artificial heart, in many advances in cancer research, and in micro-neurosurgery, a now-essential branch of medicine that involves repairing nerves and spinal cords and brains using microscopes and tiny instruments. Among many other areas where the Hartford Foundation advanced medical practice, probably the place where they most clearly saved thousands and thousands of lives was in fighting kidney failure. Until very recently, the failure of your kidneys was a death sentence. Within days or weeks, your body would be poisoned from the inside. 
Some of the first waves of Hartford Brothers' money went into battling this ancient scourge. In 1954, Hartford gave Brigham Hospital in Boston a grant that directly supported the world's first successful transplants of kidneys. This triumph was soon expanded with another $200,000 grant. More money was spent to pay the hospital bills of the people undergoing the experimental transplants, and money was invested in publishing the results in papers so other doctors could learn valuable lessons. Hartford set up all three of the new professional groups created to help doctors share information on reversing kidney failure. Money from the A&P fortune was also crucial in saving lives via the artificial kidney. Machines had been invented that could remove the poisons left in the body after kidney failure. But these literally weighed a half ton or more, were terribly expensive and slow. The Hartford Foundation put up the funds to turn so-called hemodialysis into a practical, life-saving therapy. Through weekly treatment sessions of a few hours, even patients experiencing complete kidney shutdown could be kept alive and active. The world's first out-of-hospital dialysis center treated its inaugural patient using Hartford money in 1962. Listen to the doctor who set up those groundbreaking dialysis machines in Seattle describe his first success in an early instructional video. The man that you're going to see here, Clyde Shields, should have died four years ago of end-stage kidney disease. Instead, on March 9, 1960, he became the first patient to receive chronic hemodialysis in our program. As you can see, he is fully rehabilitated to his job as a machinist, despite the fact that he has not passed any urine at all over the last four years. This case, together with the 15 other patients now under treatment in Seattle, proves that the artificial kidney can replace the life-sustaining functions of the normal human kidney. Which brings me back to my boyhood friend, Dean Benger. Though I didn't know then that it was a brand new technique brought to the public by a generous philanthropist, Dean started undergoing dialysis after his kidneys failed. It saved his life while doctors figured out what was going on in his body. Eventually, Dean lost one of his kidneys, but the other one gradually began to work again, and today he lives quite happily and productively as a husband and father and engineer. During our late elementary and middle school years, Dean was crucial in pulling me into Boy Scouting. Without him, I never would have spent the many hours in the woods that turned me into an enthusiastic outdoorsman. The skills I first developed as a scout with Dean led me to a lifelong passion for backpacking and hiking and exploring the wilderness. Those have been some of the most satisfying experiences of my adult life. And after I read about the Hartford Foundation's determined gift-making that brought life-saving dialysis to communities all across America, this finally really hit me. I realized that, you know what? If the family behind the A&P grocery stores had decided to put their money into, say, Caribbean real estate, Instead of donating it to health research, I would have lost my best childhood buddy, as well as important life experiences of my own. There are about 700,000 Americans living today, despite the fact that their kidneys have failed, thanks to dialysis and kidney transplants. For them, for Dean Bettinger, and for me, the grocery money that John Hartford shared with other Americans is a very big and very personal gift. For Sweet Charity, this has been Carl Zinsmeister. And for more tales from the Almanac of American Philanthropy, find the book at Amazon.
And that's the Almanac of American Philanthropy. And thanks to the Philanthropy Roundtable, sponsors of this great, great series, Sweet Charity. This is Our American Stories. And thanks, Carl Zinsmeister, for your work. our American stories and from time to time our own Jesse Edwards finds something for us that is so compelling, so good so spiritually good that we must take the time to sit back, close our eyes and follow him on a journey of self-discovery and enlightenment join us now as we travel to the farthest corner of the earth on an epic expedition of contemporary art It was the tallest man-made structure in the world for more than 3,800 years. What is it about this shape, this basic yet elegant, powerful structure that has inspired awe in the hearts and minds of humankind for so many thousands of years? Time after time, we see this structure assembled in all corners of the earth, from the Mayan and Aztec pyramids in Central and South America to the Yasin pyramid structures in China. Even in North America, from the Luxor in Las Vegas to the Bass Pro Shop in Memphis, Tennessee, this enigma continues to baffle scholars and the common man alike. Even on this very day, a dedicated team of dreamers is planning to erect the next symbol of ancient knowledge and mysticism known as a pyramid. This time, it won't be created using stone or glass. This time, the timeless structure of the pyramid will be crafted using a massive collection of VHS tapes from the 1996 romantic comedy Jerry Maguire. Starring America's favorite midget Scientologist, Tom Cruise. Who's coming with me? Cuba Gooding Jr. A real man would not shop from a single mother and Renee Zellweger you had me at hello hi this is Jesse Edwards for our American stories and what you just heard is it's completely true uh, there are some people who are seriously planning on building a giant pyramid made out of thousands of old VHS tapes of Jerry Maguire I first heard about it uh, a few years back, and then it just kind of disappeared, and I forgot about it. Until I recently came across headlines of a pop-up video store in Los Angeles 
that had nothing but thousands of Jerry Maguire VHS tapes on the walls, along with Jerry Maguire posters, Jerry Maguire playing on the TV screens, and uh, they even had uniformed employees running the store. It is a video store made entirely of Jerry Maguire videotapes. We get so many different types of people coming in. I've had kids come in who have never been in a video store before, and this probably will be the last video store they're in. I think this, this video store can really, really make it in this town. It's uh, very timely, the idea of having just one movie to watch. I think that's really something we're looking forward to in the future. <laughs> okay, right about now is when you hear that record-skipping sound effect and I ask, what's going on here? What's going on here? So I had to get to the bottom of this. I, I did a little digging around on the internet, and it turns out the guy behind this project is known as Commodore Gilgamesh. So uh, after some digging, I found his email address and gave him a call. He agreed to talk to us. Before we get to the Jerry Maguire pyramid, I had to find out who this guy is. My first question, so is Commodore Gilgamesh your real name? It depends on the situation, to be honest with you. I like to, uh, to change it as often as possible, so I uh, can't be Googled efficiently. His real name is Nick Mayer. He and a few of his friends run a website called everythingisterrible.com. Everything is Terrible is a video and performance collective um, based in Los Angeles and a lot of other cities all around the country where we primarily take old video clips and re-edit them into like new psychedelic and comedy pieces that we put on the internet. So I've been doing that for almost 10 years um, and, you know, I have a history in like video and performance and stuff. So that's kind of my, my main background. So how'd you get started collecting old VHS tapes in the first place? I've always been interested in this. I was, um, I got two VCRs for Christmas when I was like 11, I think, and started copying tapes. Um, I think that was probably the beginning. I made my, my basement in my parents' house into like a video store looking thing. I collected a bunch of posters and covered them in, in movie posters and had cardboard stand-ups everywhere and had made copies of all the movies. So, um, I've been kind of on the same trajectory for a very long time. So, um, yeah, just always been interested in, uh, in media, and all of us in the group are, are hoarders of media and also creators. So we wanted to kind of combine our love of hoarding with our love of creating. So we kind of found the per- perfect little niche for that. So how many copies of Jerry Maguire do you actually own? I would say we have over 14,000 at this point. Um, since the Jerry, Jerry Maguire store has been open, they've been flooding in. So um, yeah, over fourteen thousand copies. We we hope to we hope to double it by the time we get to their final resting place, the Jerry Maguire Pyramid. Uh, so I imagine it's probably quite a logistical nightmare to collect and store all of that. How do you do it? It has made our lives very difficult over the years. Um, so we've been doing this for eight years, and um, we tour and we get all these tapes given to us, and we have to strap them on top of our vans and cars and go to post offices and mail them to ourselves. And we've spent thousands of dollars uh, on this project and uh, an enormous amount of time. Uh, usually they, they used to live in our homes, just like stacked everywhere. Um, but in the last few years, we've had a studio where we've been able to store them uh, and they take up a lot of space there. I think we have six pallets filled with, with Jerry Maguire's. So people mail these things to you constantly. How, how many do you think you get uh, every week? Sometimes we don't talk about this for a year or so because we forget that we're doing it. Um, so it'll slow down to a trickle of, you know, at lowest 30 to 50 tapes a week or so, and then at the highest, you know, 200 or so a week. So they're always coming in. 
So the, the obvious question, why Jerry Maguire? Why did you come up with the idea to start hoarding VHS tapes at the movie? And where did they even come from? The, the Jerry Maguire's was, it was really just the, uh, it is just the most natural way for us to get the most of a single piece of media, I think. The, there, there are many, many Jerry Maguire VHS tapes out there. They have been forsaken, and we have decided that we need to rescue all of them. So uh, purely out of the numbers is, is how we got here. We just saw them over and over again at thrift stores while we were looking for the other, um, the other footage that we use for, for the videos on our website. And we originally just started taking photos of them and then started buying them and eventually put a call out on our website and in our live performances that we wanted all of them and we needed help. So that's really when it took off. Just all of our fans would not stop buying them and bringing them to us. And that's where they've all come from. Now tell us about the pyramid that you're building with these 14,000 plus copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS. In our efforts to save and preserve these artifacts of our culture. Um, we are working with a team of, of engineers and architects to construct a tomb that will be in the desert far away from our cities and, and towns and whatnot so, so as to protect them, uh, where all of the Jerry Maguire VHS tapes can live safely um, long after we're all gone from here. So um, we, that's what we're doing right now, and that's why we're asking everyone to to mail us uh, copies of Jerry Maguire or bring them to our shows and also to help out financially to help build this thing because it's literally the most important thing that any of us can be doing right now. <laughs> Is it going to be like an attraction people can actually go and see with the family? It's or? going to be an attraction, um, but one that it takes uh, a little bit of work to get to. We're not going to hide it from anybody. We're going to make it very clear where it is, but you're going to have to get there. It's, it's going to be a little bit of a pilgrimage. It's important for people to be in the presence of this many Jerry Maguires, and it's important <laughs> for them to, uh, you know, experience the, the journey to get there also. So you set up a mock video store in L.A. Uh, full of these tapes for sort of what, a, a performing arts installation? Tell us about it. When we were collecting Jerry's, as we, we lovingly call them, um, we've just joked about all the many things that we could do with them. And the thing that just kept coming up was opening a video store that carries only Jerry Maguire's. Uh, so and it, it slowly became the beginning of the end for us. So this is like the announcement of the Pyramid. We're raising awareness. We're getting people in the room to, to feel the power of the Jerry's. And uh, hopefully it's going to catapult this whole project uh, in, into, the, into the air here. How many people does it take to pull something like this off? Everything is Terrible is a pretty loose collective of five core members that have been around since the beginning and then probably like 15 others who've, who've come along and help out with specific things. Uh, but the, the Jerry McGuire Video Store, we have probably 40 volunteers working on it. How do people react to the video store? I mean, just walking down the street, you see this thing. What happens next? Half of the people who come into the store know about everything that's terrible, know about the project, and they're just so pumped. <laughs> and then the other half, you watch them walk by, and they're just like mouths agape. They stop, they kind of walk by, then they come back, and then it's great. By the end, everyone is laughing and smiling because it's kind of inescapable how silly it is to see all of them together. And that's Nick Mayer. A.K.A. Commodore Gilgamesh. He's a guy with a collection of over 14,000 copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS who's planning on building a massive pyramid with them out in the middle of the desert. Because why not? 
To find out more about the project or to donate any copies of Jerry Maguire on VHS you might have lying around in your own collection, go to jerrymaguirepyramid.com where you can also find a link to donate to their GoFundMe page. For our American stories, I'm Jesse Edwards. <laughs> Thank you for that, Jesse. And I'm, I'm feeling the power of the Jerry's <laughs> myself. There's always the whole team here. This is our American stories. Hey, we love talking about the American dream. This is one of them. The Jerry Maguire Pyramid. More after these messages once again. This is our American stories, and that's Jesse Edwards. We want more of these, Jesse. A lot more of them. is Our American Stories, and we love to dig into the idea and the reality of the American dream. I think a lot of people think it's dead. I think a lot of people are trying to sell it such, but it's not, and we love digging in, thanks to Job Creators Network, into the real-life stories of folks who come here with nothing and build things, and it happens over and over and over again. It's why so many people are trying to get into this country. And not to Cuba or to China. By the way, we did a fascinating story about a Chinese-American who tried to emigrate to China just as a thought experiment to see how many people are actually trying to go to China. And it's nobody. Nobody is trying to go to China. And joining us for the hour to talk about his life is Bernie Moreno, owner of the Bernie Moreno Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain in the Midwest, and that's car dealerships, of course. Bernie, thanks for joining us. Oh, happy to have you. You bet. Hey, we start off, Bernie, every interview we do by asking folks to tell us about where they were born, who their parents were, and the effect both of those things, both their place of birth and their family, had on their lives. Yeah, no, for, well, for me, it's everything. Uh, you know, I was born in Bogota, Colombia, and uh, my dad and my mom uh, both uh, were obviously uh, uh, born in Colombia as well. Our whole family's from there. My dad was educated in the U.S., so he uh, uh, he got his uh, uh, undergraduate degree in college in Colombia, got his uh, medical degree in Colombia, and then came up to the United States in the 50s to get his Ph.D. at the University of Pennsylvania. And then my mom, who back then, you know, in the, in the 50s, uh, most women uh, you would never think about as going to college. Uh, my grandfather insisted that she go to college, so she went, uh, she came to the U.S. and studied in California and uh, the, uh, the, uh, at the time, the woman's equivalent of Stanford back then. Uh, so both my parents were educated there. They have a, had a profound influence on my life, my values. And uh, so that's the story. And tell me about the transition, because it's always so interesting to me to, to hear the story. I remember from my grandparents, one came from Lebanon, uh, one came from Italy. And I, it always just fascinated me. That, that trip, because that, that first trip is, is tough. It's a real dare. It's a real act of courage, in a way, to just leave everything you know and go to a foreign land. Uh, what was that like for your, your dad and then for yourself and your mom? Yeah, so as my mom likes to tell the story, she packed up seven kids in 22 suitcases and got in a plane, and uh, we flew from uh, Bogota to, uh, to Fort Lauderdale and uh, you know, started a new life. Uh, it was 
particularly hard on my dad. My dad was uh, the dean of the medical school in South America and Colombia at, at the youngest age ever. So he was in his mid-30s, and he's the dean of, med- of the most prominent medical school in Colombia. Then he became what was the equivalent of the Secretary of Health for the country. And when he came to the U.S., even though he had all that background and training and everything else, he still had to get his residency. So he went from being you know, the palace to the outhouse pretty quickly. So he had to join basically 20-year-olds uh, getting their residency uh, you know, with midnight shifts and 24-hour shifts and things like that when he would, had, had been a, a pretty prominent person in Colombia. So he had to eat a lot of uh, humble pie, so we say. Yeah, and, that, and uh, so, uh, so watching him do that was very inspiring. That is inspiring because, my goodness, it also tells you how much he thought this was a really good move for his family because when a, when a father's willing to eat that kind of humble pie, he's doing it for a whole host of reasons uh, and more than maybe you could even imagine at the time. Yeah, I mean, our, our American story is probably a little bit different than most. You know, my, my parents were very well off in South America. My grandparents were extremely wealthy on both sides of the family. My mom made a decision for us to come to the U.S. because one of the things that makes this country unique is that you are not uh, driven by the circumstances of your birth in, the, in, in America. So if you're anywhere else in the world, pretty much, or you mentioned China, anywhere else in the world, if you're born wealthy or you're born poor, you're going to stay in that trajectory. Whereas in the U.S., you have to determine your destiny. And my, it was very important for my mom for us to come to the U.S. and be the determiners of our destiny, she didn't want us to be. Uh, in a, she didn't want us to be in a situation where we took wealth and privilege for granted. So we came to the U.S. and rebooted our lives, and we we came from, you know, a very privileged uh, background in Colombia uh, to being middle class in America. And what a beautiful what a beautiful thing for your family to do for you, by the way. You know, we were talking to uh, Mario Andretti. He was one of our American Dreamer series, Bernie. And, you know, Mario's circumstance, his family had had some wealth in Italy, in the northern part of Italy. But then came World War II, and then came Yugoslavia coming in to claim what was the family vineyard. And the, uh-huh. fa- the father was asked, look, you can keep part of your vineyard, but you've got to renounce your Catholic faith, and you've got to renounce, well... Your, your life, in essence, and swear allegiance to Tito. And his father's like, no, thank you. No, thank you. And, and Mario and the family struggle for the longest time. He comes to the United States, to Nazareth, and just invents this life. And he said something interesting. He said, if I had grown up in Italy, I had some wealth. But in Italy, you had, you were, your class determined everything, and I did not have enough wealth to be a race car driver. But in America, merit, merit is what gets you where you go. Exactly right. And, and, uh, then, you know, and my dad, you know, when he, he passed away three years ago, but, you know, he was the chief of surgery of the local hospital. He built a very thriving private practice. My mom had three real estate offices with 100 employees that she sold to Caldwell Banker. So we got to watch what people who are driven, that have uh, fire in their belly, who don't look at anything, any obstacles, anything other that they need to be overcome. We watched and witnessed my parents climbed that ladder uh, from middle class to, to wealth, but on their own merit. And that's really, I think, at the end of the day, what my mom wanted to teach us. And it was it just left a mark mark with us that I'll never forget. I mean, she, she made us work from the time we were 12 years old. It just wasn't optional. Well, when, and, uh, when we come things. back, Bernie, hold that thought. 
When we come back, we're going to dig into that first job because we love talking about first jobs with everybody. We have Mark Cuban. We have Ashton Kutcher, Mike Rowe, you name it. And just everybody, we ask about work because work's so important. If obviously, your parents taught you a work ethos, no entitlement uh, in your family. Uh, in fact, they stripped it away by moving to the United States. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamers segment, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages with Bernie Marino. Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We continue our conversation with Bernie Moreno as a part of our American Dreamers series, brought to us, as always, by Job Creators Network. Bernie, we left off uh, with first jobs, and let's, let's hear from you. You said you started work at 12 years old, and my girl's about to turn 12 next year, and that's when I'm starting her, too. What was your first job? Yeah, so you'll appreciate this. So we lived in Fort Lauderdale, and as you know, there's a big group of condos in, uh, in that area. And so I was a paper delivery boy. So at, at 2 o'clock in the morning, some guy would pull up with a van, pick me up at my house, and drive me two miles to what's called Gulf Ocean Mile. And then I would spend the next three hours delivering newspapers in, uh, inside uh, these big, huge condo buildings. And then I'd get back home around 5 o'clock in the morning, uh, sleep for an hour and a half, and then get up and go to school. Can you imagine putting your 12-year-old daughter with <laughs> some strange guy in a van in the middle of the night? <laughs> It was a different time. <laughs> it was a different time. You know, one of our favorite. week, by the way. <laughs> we have this uh, Lenore Skenazy comes on our show on parenting, and she got d- dubbed the world's worst parent by the New York Post because she decided that maybe her little kid, her, her child, uh, I think 11 years old at the time, could take the subway to school alone, and they just <laughs> hammered her for it. And I thought, Mike, this is what everybody did when we were kids. Right. Well, imagine what they'd say about my mom letting me get in a uh, van with some strangers. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Division of Youth and Services would be – she'd be in prison right now, Bernie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about your 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 itch for cars. Uh, when did you first get that itch? Yeah, so for, for – uh, since I was a little little kid, I could name every brand of car when I was four, five, six years old. It was actually a way I learned English. Uh, so I learned English watching Schoolhouse Rock, uh, watching Sesame Street, reading car magazines, and I just loved cars. Uh, my dad loved cars himself. Uh, he, he, his favorite brand was Mercedes-Benz. So I would go to car dealerships, uh, uh, you know, ask them questions, go with my dad to buy cars. And, um, you know, my dad used it as a marker. You know, cars were a marker for him. Like if he thought he was being successful, he would buy a car that was just a little bit nicer than his previous one. And that was a really important marker that he used to, to kind of track his own progression. And uh, so I always knew I wanted to be in the car business. I just little kid, always just that was my dream. You just knew, and it, and, and it's interesting that and uh, you may be one of the only freshmen in high school to ever write a personal letter to the 
head of General Motors, telling him what was right and, more importantly, what was wrong with his car company. Talk about that. Yeah, so we had taken a history class. We learned about Wilson's uh, 16 points uh, during World War One to end the war. Yep. So I wrote, uh, I wrote Roger Smith the 16 points to fix General Motors. And uh, he actually wrote me back a three-page letter, one point by point. And uh, and then he, he he lied at the end. He said he was going to make sure GM was in good health when I uh, when I took over. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, I want to read something that he did write to you. He he wrote this quote: "It's not often I receive a letter from someone who is planning to take over my job." Smith replied, "You are to be congratulated for knowing exactly what it is you want to do once you complete your high school and college education. I'll try my best to make sure that General Motors is in good financial shape when you join us 11 years from now." So you're right; he did lie. He did lie. About that, yeah. uh, but uh, and, then, and, and so that letter, you know, inspired me to, to go to the University of Michigan because obviously that's where you go if you want to be at General Motors as an executive. I went there, went to work for Saturn Corporation, which is really his brainchild. I give him credit for that. And uh, that's how I started my career in the carpet. You know, what's interesting is we did an hour on the life of Henry Ford. And I didn't have an appreciation quite for what he and Rockefeller managed to do simultaneously. Because Ford was able to bring a car down to a price point where every American could own one. And but not for the spread of this thing called gasoline at low prices all around the country. What was going to power the darn thing? Uh, yeah, it was amazing that those two guys lived during the same era. And obviously, as you know, we live here in Cleveland, where Rockefeller made made his company. That's happen. right. And uh, it's it's amazing today, uh, over a hundred years later, a lot of the legacy of Rockefeller lives here in Cleveland. Oh, you bet! With all the endowments, with all the the things yep. he left behind, you know, it's amazing, Bernie. Just a separate point that the average American kid doesn't know these stories, but somehow knows how bad these guys were or how bad these, quote, industrialists were. But but for these guys, there's no American middle class. No, absolutely. I mean, they were. you can't judge them by today's era. No. Uh, you have to judge them by the era in which they lived. But these guys created, created they helped create it, the America that it is today. You bet. And, and, Bernie, what was your first car? First car was a Honda CRX, a red Honda CRX. So I read an automobile magazine, I'm sorry, a car and driver magazine about this new Honda that was coming out. Yep. It was $7,995. Uh, my uh, my parents told me I could buy any car I wanted as long as I paid for it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I I saved up. You know, again I'd worked since I was twelve. So when I was sixteen, I had, I had exactly that amount of money saved up. I went to the local Honda dealer. They had no idea about this car. They never even heard of it. <laughs> so I put a deposit down, bought the car, and uh, that was my first car. And every dollar I every dollar I made, I think eighty percent of the dollar went into into the car. Was the CRX the mid engine? No, it was a little guy with the, the rear hatchback. Oh, that's right, right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I had an MR2, which, uh, oh, okay. which was a heck of a lot of fun to drive. And uh, did, you, did you get off the uh, sticker price on that, or did you have to pay full boat? No, no, no. This is, this is, uh, this is the 80s, and uh, I just aged myself. Yeah. So Honda dealers would charge over sticker. Over sticker. So because, they, because they hadn't heard of the car, right. I was able to buy it for sticker. Shortly thereafter, they were marking them all up 2000 bucks over stickers, so I was very happy. Good for you. So you negotiated a good deal for yourself, too. too. Exactly. And uh, so, so now you're, you're, you're thinking about this thing called the car business. How do you get from coming out of college to doing this thing called owning a, a dealership? And by the way, car dealers are, you know, in any town, they're the lifeblood of a town. Good jobs, yeah, yeah. Uh, good connections. There, you can't imagine towns without them. But how did you? How did you do this leap? Obviously, you were not going to get any financial help from your parents for this. No, no. My mom uh, uh, made it clear 
that the contract was we educate you to age 22, and then we really, really love you after that. It's <laughs> <laughs> fantastic. So, so uh, I, I graduated from college, went to work for Saturn Corporate, met a, a guy in Boston who was a car dealer, went to work for him for 12 years, uh, and, uh, and then out of the blue, 11 and a half years ago, uh, 12 years after working for this guy, uh, Mercedes-Benz called me and said, hey, we have a dealership that's very underperforming in Cleveland. Uh, it's owned by Roger Penske. Uh, we've uh, convinced him to sell it. Uh, we want you to buy it. And uh, I took every cent I'd ever seen in my life and mortgaged every, every possession I had and bought this one dealership that was selling 200 cars a year. And I uh, took that dealership, and this year we'll sell over 3,000 cars. <laughs> I was doing about $16 million a year in revenue. Our company this year would do close to a billion. And uh, we just took that one dealership and grew it into the company that we have today. And imagine this. Robert, this, for folks who don't know the car business, the Penske name is a pretty good name. So you're coming in there with no experience. This could have been the sucker sale of all time. <laughs> right, you, know, right. you know that, right? Absolutely. But you didn't Absolutely. care, did you? No, no. You know, I knew. Listen, I, I, I even said this to the Mercedes people. I said, if Roger Penske was the guy running that dealership, forget it. Not, I, Roger Penske could run circles around me. There's no question about that. The guy's an amazing man. But I knew that who was running that dealership was somebody who was maybe a C or D player. Yep. Uh, because it was such a small dealership, I knew that I could make a difference in that store, and that's what I did. Uh, and so I'll always be for, eternally grateful to, to Roger Penske for giving me the opportunity to buy that store from him. Yep. Like I say, he's, he's an amazing man, amazing story. He happens to be from Cleveland as well. But, uh, you know, we were able to take that dealership and just be very successful with it. Yeah, and, I, and I'm sure, you know, a guy like him is happy for your success, too. That's the thing about the, the, the folks that I think are often mis, mischaracterized or maligned by the media. And that's, I think, business people. And that's half the reason we're doing this kind of show, Bernie, is because uh, American people don't really know what goes into starting businesses or who these people are. And now they're hearing your story and the risks you took with your own capital and your time, what was the key to turning that place around? Talk about some of the things that you did that weren't being done by the management before, before you. I think it, was, it, was, it all starts, and success all starts, and this is, again, ingrained in, with me, for, with, with, my, with my mom, which is uh, uh, you, it's all about attitude. The attitude that you have towards any objection that you have out there. There's, there you, can, you can buy into a million excuses as to why you shouldn't be successful. Uh, there's something I call the immigrant mentality, and I had that immigrant mentality when I came to Cleveland to buy this dealership because I was all in. There was no plan B. There was no scenario in which partial success or s- small failure would be acceptable. So I knew I was all in on this dealership, and uh, as a result, I had to be successful. So I, I, if there was an obstacle, I just didn't buy into it. It, it just, you know, Cleveland's a blue-collar town. I heard that. They don't buy Mercedes in Cleveland. Just that wasn't an option for me. Right. I couldn't. I couldn't believe that that was true. Uh, and so we just did it, and we and we took exceptional care of our clients. You know, one of the things with me is that I love cars so much, like we talked about. But people don't love buying cars, which doesn't make sense to me. They don't love servicing cars. Yep. So our company's philosophy is changing that, and we we think of it as how do we put ourselves in a customer service business where people look at coming to a car dealership as a really positive experience. What a crazy thought, and let's hold that thought. When we come back, we're going to talk about this thing called fans as opposed to customers. Bernie believes in that. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. 
This is our American Dreamer series, and this is Our American Stories. And this is Our American Stories, and it's our American Dreamers segment, and we're spending the hour with Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury dealership chain, and that's a car dealership, car dealerships in the Midwest. And where we left off was uh, talking about fans as opposed to customers, and we spent an hour with the founder of Metro Bank and what was amazing, and Commerce Bank, and what was amazing about his philosophy was that he didn't want customers he wanted fans and he even wrote a book about that talk about your stance on customers versus fans yeah we don't even call it we don't even say the word customer because customer implies a transaction and uh what we what we ultimately want to create is a group of friends selling cars to other friends and um and and we look at his clients because we look at it as a long relationship with that client not just one car or one service visit and we make our team members realize that their everything that our company does revolves around that client relationship. Well, and in the end, if you do this right, that's a massive unpaid sales force you have if you just take care of your clients. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It's dramatically harder to get a client than to keep a client. And uh, so we look at the little things, again, little details. So we have things like, for example, we have a vision statement that our people – uh, carry with them at all times that they need to know. It's, it's very, very important. We have commandments. So, uh, you know, I went to Catholic school and they had the Ten Commandments, but the Ten Commandments are very negative. You know, it tells you all the stuff not to do. Right. So we have something called the Ten Commandments of our company that starts with having fun. Because why would you want to come to a company or a job that we're not having fun? So right. having fun is one of our commandments. Thou shalt have fun. <laughs> and, so we, and, and all of our team, our, all of our team members know the Ten Commandments and they got to follow them. It's pretty basic stuff. Yeah, pretty basic stuff. And I got to tell you, you're starting with the big one because, folks, you know, when you're having fun, you can, having fun ripping people off isn't. It can't be fun. It no, can't be. No, absolutely. No. And, and, and so, and, that's, it's, and that would be that would be the opposite of the type of people that we want to hire. That's exactly right. And I think the reputation that that, that that I think, and the reason why people didn't want to go to car dealers, and I think you'll appreciate this. I put myself through law school, uh, leasing cars. And I had just found that, that the way that uh, car leasing companies were working, they were hiding the interest rates. They were calling these things money factors. They were selling the cars up. And all I did was treat the car lease like a sale. I had total transparency. And the next thing I know, I know not only had great cars because I was buying the trades for a fair price, Brian, but I, I had these incredible customers who were coming to me, and then I was just selling the car. I was just handling the transactional side because the financial guys in these dealerships were so, so many of them were ripping people off. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I tell our team all the time: car dealerships didn't get a reputation by accident. Uh, and so that's the good news: is that the business that we're in is a low bar that we have to cross, and we just make certain that we blow that bar away. Yeah, and I think Bernie that the 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 Saturn people were trying to get around that, but yeah. that that wasn't the answer, was it? No, because Saturn Saturn no Saturn had a lot of great uh, uh, things to it. There's no question about that. I think that where Saturn went wrong is that the, the, they just never General Motors just never invested uh, money in making the car great. Right. So so had they made a great car, it would have <laughs> been great. But uh, 
But you know, there, there's there's just so much of what Saturn did that really changed changed the business. It was a long time ago. So it was, and we're we're doing those. We're still putting those things in place in our company. Right, but in the end, if you don't have the cars, um, all you know, the fan experience. Some of it has to do with the customer contact. But in the end, the product you're selling better be a good product too. Yeah, exactly. Because that that was the thing. The process was so strong. They carried Saturn for years, but eventually General Motors milked that product. And, and killed Saturn by not had General Motors invested a, a normal amount of money in product development, Saturn would be be the biggest car company uh, out there right now today because the process just killed it. Yep. They they did the opposite. They bled they bled they bled the process down to nothing. Yeah, and and again, this is a, this is what can happen with big corporations. Um, they can just they can you know sometimes just miss it. And talk about the products. Um, talk about cars today uh, as opposed to 20 years ago, and talk about some of your favorites. Yeah, well, uh, Mercedes-Benz for sure. Uh, you know, I, I got, again, like I mentioned, my dad loved Mercedes. I love Mercedes. Uh, we have three Mercedes-Benz dealerships. It's definitely the uh, – you're, you're not supposed to have favorites with kids or, or dealerships. <laughs> but in my case, I violate that rule, and Mercedes is for sure um, my favorite car. I would say after that, Porsche. Uh, you know, Porsche just is probably the best engineered vehicles in the world. You can't just can't beat it. Yep. Uh, and uh, that, you know, so those are the cars I drive every day. Uh, we're we're very uh, uh, bullish on Infinity. We think Infinity for, as a as a value luxury brand is a great great brand. And uh, and then Buick and GMC. I mean, I think from from General Motors um, after the bankruptcy. Those are the two strongest brands, I think, that, that General Motors has is Buick and GFC, so we're very bullish about that brand as well. Well, that's fantastic. And, you know, and going back to that culture we were talking about, um, you, you give away your cell phone number to your, to your clients. I, I, would, I would guess that not many uh, heads of dealerships do that. So why do you do that? Well, you can't. This is, this is I think, the biggest issue that, that companies have. Every company, literally every company, talks about great customer service. Everybody does. But there's a hypocrisy because they don't deliver great customer Every company doesn't deliver great customer service. Yep. And the leaders of those companies are the ones that preach one thing and do another. So, for example, if I say that our clients are the most important thing, well, then why wouldn't I give them my cell phone number? Right. They're more important than I am, aren't they? Yep. So if the client wants to get a hold of me and email me or send me or call me, I got to make that easy because otherwise my team will say, "Well, obviously you're better than they are." And the answer is, I'm not. I'm, uh, you know, service means to serve, so I'm here to serve our clients just like our team members are. And you know what's interesting also is maybe you're creating the culture that says, "If I can just get high enough up the ranks, I don't have to deal with those pesky customers either." Right. Exactly. Exactly. So what does that say to people? Yeah, it's it's really terrible. You know, we had the 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 head of talent uh, of human talent, and they don't call it human resources at Chick Fil A, but uh, Deanna. I'm, I'm not recalling her last name, but Deanna is her first name. Terrific lady, and she was talking about at Chick Fil A how whenever they have to fire someone in the end, and they don't do it often, they really blame themselves because it meant that they hadn't hired right. When you go out to hire folks. What are you thinking about? What are you looking for? And for all the parents out there that are listening, you're listening to out to now to a guy who actually hires. What are you looking for? Personality. You can't. You can't train. You can't train personality. You can't train morals. You can't train train work ethic, and you can't train honesty. Those. That's absolutely the most important thing. 
uh, that you got. And then from there, the rest is just, you know, some teaching and some learning. Um, but if you don't have those core values, how do you ferret them out? How do you, how do you know what's what? How do you know a person has honesty? How do you figure that one out? Uh, you look at their track record. I think you, you, you know, good interviews, good background checks, good uh, uh, ability to really get, get into, their, uh, into their history a little bit. But you can see it in their personality. You know, if somebody's attracted to my company in sales, for example, because they want to make a killing selling uh, in terms of money with individual car transactions, that's not for me. Yep. Because, because I'm more interested in somebody who says to me, hey, listen, I, I want to make a little bit less money than normal on sales of cars, but make it up over the period of 10, 15, 20 years of that client, that's much more appealing. So you get a sense of what they're all about that way. Yeah, that's so true. And I mean, if somebody wants to dig in with you for 10 or 15 years because they want the repeat business, they're telling you they don't want to work 70 hours a week for three years and burn out. They want to work 45 hours a week, but with integrity and stay in for a long time and meet their clients at the Little League field and not hide under a rock and not hide under a rock. When we come back, we're going to dig a little into public policy. We're going to talk a little about the obstacles that business folks face uh, more in our American Dreamers series. And for the hour, we have Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. And he started it from scratch, digging into his own pocket and risking everything he had with one dealership. And now, oh my goodness, a nice little empire. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we've been spending the hour in a delightful way. We love talking to American dreamers, because my goodness, if you're listening to this, it just lifts the spirits. I mean, imagine uh, working for someone who has the Ten Commandments, and the most important commandment is, thou shalt have fun. And by the way, this is the spirit of American business in the end. It's almost every entrepreneur I've ever met. You know, you're not going to get anywhere without a happy workforce and a workforce that really likes coming to work. What a crazy idea. And, Bernie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, no, it's a pleasure. Hey, one more cultural point before we then dig into the uh, public policy space. You know, I, I, I co-write columns with a guy named Mike Levin who's grown some very big businesses. And what he's always worried about is too much senior management and too much distance between him and the people on the, on the, on the ground. And that in the end, too many vice presidents can really mess up an operation. And, and talk about that as you grow, um, what you worry about and what the hardest fights are internally. Forget what, what the government's doing. We're going to get to that next. But internally, and not your comp- competition, just inside your own culture, how do you keep what you have? That is a, that is a remarkably important point. And I made that mistake. I, I created a structure where I had... Uh, layers, extra layers in there with vice presidents and a chief operating officer and all that stuff. And it did separate me from my people, and the company suffered as a result. 
so subsequently I've gotten rid of all that structure, and uh, now it's me, general manager, and then the people who work in the store. And that has made a giant difference in the culture because the, cult, the culture dried up the minute I put those layers in place. Yeah. Because t- typically those people don't, or at least in my case, they weren't able to articulate our company culture the same way. And without culture, you're just another company. Yeah, you know, there's this great moment in, uh, in the history of the National Press Club where people had wondered how Bobby Knight had managed all those years. And like Bobby Knight, the coach at Indiana, or don't like him, his boys never got in trouble. They all graduated. And, but one, Isaiah Thomas, who he guilted into coming back and finishing. And so he's at the National Press Club, and he said, how did you do it? Somebody asked him, how did you do it? And he, he brought with him two props. One is the Manhattan phone book, and he said, these are the NCA rules and regulations. He drops them. There's a thud. Then he reaches into his pocket, and he has the Ten Commandments. He goes, these, these basic rules work pretty well for me. And, yeah, there you go. and I think it's that. I think it's that. Um, I, you know, I'm sorry you had to go through the, the land of vice presidents and getting rid of them, but, boy, what an important lesson for even the owner to learn. Yeah, exactly. No, absolutely. Let's talk, absolutely. About, let's talk about the government, and let's talk about first – uh, things out there that, uh, as an entrepreneur, you wish might be different. If you were getting to talk to the next future president of the United States about what might be impediments to growth, um, what might help you and your workforce as it relates to benefits, what would you tell them? The government needs to stay out of the, the way of job creators. Uh, you know, the, the government should be, you should be looking at, if you run the United States of America as a politician, you should be looking at and saying, how do we support, enhance, and make the lives better of people creating jobs, which are business people, and people who work in those companies? How do we make their lives better? Instead, the current debate is all about how do we control, how do we put a barrier, how do we make things more difficult, how do we tax to create a giant centralized behemoth entity, which was never envisioned by our founding fathers. The fact that there's a million people that work in the executive branch I think our, our founding fathers are rolling over in our graves. Well, and imagine what we just learned from you, because I think this applies to public and private sector. The bigger stuff gets and the more vice presidents and the more bureaucrats there are, the bigger the distance between the customer, the taxpayer, and the, right. and, and the, and the CEO. And, exactly. Uh, and so if that happened to you, Bernie, in your business, I can't imagine how you run a government with a million employees. You can't. The answer is you don't. I mean, there's... Well, thousands, tens of thousands of people working in the education of U.S. Department of Education doing what? They're not educating kids. You know, that money, if if there's one thing that I think could be a possible silver lining that comes out of this election, if Trump were to win, would be that the power goes back to the states. Uh, There's been a giant seismic shift, one flash at a time, where power shifted to the centralized bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. Yep. And if you look at what's the most efficient form of government, it's the mayor. He's not a partisan. He's not talking about gay marriage and abortion and immigration. You know what he's talking about? Hey, you have a pothole in front of your street? Yep. Crap, we got to fix that. Yep. <laughs> i got to get a business in the town. I'm going to go to that ribbon-cutting ceremony. I'm going to go to that business owner and say, how do I make your job better? You bet. You know, we, deal, we deal with, uh, I think, 14 municipalities, and they're all fabulous because yep. it's the, they know that if I bring jobs to their city, they're going to have more money to do the things that they need to do in that town. The further you get disconnected, county, state, still close because you can make a lot of influence there. But once it goes to Washington, D.C., it's gone. It just goes into a black hole. That's crazy. You know, the central government, if you read a book called The Quartet that talks about our fo- foremost important founding fathers, 
it talks about they envisioned a very, very small centralized government that basically provided for the defense of the country. Yep. That's it. And that's it. And, and what's interesting is, you know, I was listening to David McCulloch. He was giving a talk on 1776. And towards the end, someone had said something like, hey, what do you think of what's going on in America with like those Tea Party groups and this? And it, there seems to be a lot of dissent in the country. And he goes, well, I can say this because I don't weigh in on anything that hasn't happened within the last 50 years. Historians have to wait 50 years. But our founders, I can promise you this, felt a foreign government ruling over their intimate day-to-day life and they didn't like it and so they revolted and i think now the american citizens tea party not tea party are feeling like there's this big foreign government but it's in washington dc but it's still foreign the state houses have they can't print money they have to hit a budget the local mayor oh my goodness he just has to get things done and so i think that that gets to your point and and that leads me to this franchise uh discussion um what what's going on uh, with this um, debate and discussion as it relates to the protection of franchise owners. And where are you uh, on this? I, I think the pendulum, the pendulum uh, uh, has swung too far where uh, dealers have gotten together and influenced politicians too strongly to make it so crippling for manufacturers to be able to operate their brands properly that there needs to be some equilibrium back into the system. Uh, it can, it, you know, the, the laws should protect and create value for franchises, uh, but it can't be to the point where, like teachers' unions, like police unions, uh, that you can't get rid of the bad ones. Yep. I think the, when that happens and it's too far the other way, it's, it's a problem. Again, you don't want it to be completely, uh, because that, otherwise you, you lose the value as a franchisee, which the franchise or doesn't want that to happen. Of course. Uh, uh, but the pendulum is definitely swung to it. I'll, I'll give you an example. If Tesla chooses to sell cars in my market on their own and they don't have dealers, God bless them. Now, I'll look at it and say, I want to be right next to that Tesla dealership because what I'm going to do is I'm going to run it as an entrepreneur and I'm going to run circles around that, that enterprise uh, because they're going to have a bunch of uh, disconnected, like we just talked about, people who have no vested interest in what happens in that market. Right. So over time, they won't succeed, but I got to prove that thesis. I, I don't want a law that proves that thesis. Right, exactly. Right? I got to add value to the chain. So if yeah. Tesla wants to sell cars without dealerships, God bless them, do it. Yeah, my dad it was a superintendent of schools, and he was always leading the charter school movement and the voucher movement. And all the, all the superintendents, why are you doing this? He goes, I want the competition. If a parent wants to leave this school, I want to give them the money and let them go somewhere else. That's that. And they thought he was crazy, but that's actually what makes for better schools, the same things that make for, well, better soap and better deodorant, for goodness sake. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, yep. so I'm all for competition. And, and so you can't, you can't be for free enterprise and competition unless it affects you. Right, right. Exactly <laughs> right. Not, everybody else, that's great, but not me. And, right. and thanks for taking that position because too often folks are for, or, or, are for business, like pro-business. I don't want to be pro-business. I don't want to be anti-business. I want to be for free enterprise, and I want to be for competition because that helps the customer in the end. Um, exactly. And right. that's the pro-consumer uh, advocacy that, that's best. Final thoughts for folks listening uh, who don't know anything about uh, job creation and don't know about that first day. That day you leveraged everything. Uh, were you terrified? Were you excited? Uh, or both? I joke that there's uh, three emotions that come into play. Total and complete fear, total and complete joy, and total and complete nervousness. <laughs> and uh, you just got to get the mix right. 
and you got to live in that space and just keep marching yeah. forward. You got yeah, you can't, you can't uh, you, uh, listen, you're going to, you know, as uh, Shakespeare said, better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. So better to have tried and failed than never to have tried at all. And, and, and do you have kids, Bernie? I have four kids. And, and, and I assume you, you, you've taught them and instilled in them the same values that, uh, that your folks did. Yeah, that's what we've certainly strived to do. That absolutely. Well, I know I did hear you say you can buy any car you want with your own money. So that oh, that's the same. That sort of was the cue. Well, we appreciate you joining us, uh, Bernie Marino, owner of the Bernie Marino Companies, the largest luxury car dealership chain in the Midwest. Started with his own money, which was money he saved. Started with one dealership that uh, a guy named Penske couldn't get to work, and uh, he got it to work. And it started with uh, millions in sales and is now up to the, and get me if I'm right here, you said, Bernie, a billion in sales now? A billion in sales, yep. That's crazy. Uh, well, we, we look forward to visiting you when we're up in the area, and thanks so much for joining us. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and this is Our American Dreamer series, and it's brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network who are concerned always with the small business becoming a bigger business, and trying to fight the impediments that are in the way of that happening. And we heard that voice of Bernie, and my goodness, you want to be on the side of these guys that can change your town, and they can change a city, a state, and my goodness, we unleash the spirit of these guys. Thou shalt have fun. Yeah, they say that in Washington. Yeah, thou shalt have fun with our money. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. 